0: It's not so much that that we're going to find technological fixes, although I think they possibly play a part in an, in a kind of in a path forwards. But I think the the main thing is that that we need a, a change of mind or a change of heart, really. You know, we we're kind of designing these spaces to be to allow people to step in and kind of get a sense of a potential future. But I think we, what we weren't ex- experiencing, weren't expecting, was that. The, the effect that that would have on us and our own thinking. You know, it's, it's not so much like a, um, a formula that will result in a given end, but more a kind of a process of mutual discovery.
1: Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is John Arder. John is a designer, artist, and technologist. He's the co founder and director of Superflux, where he develops long term vision and strategy for the studio alongside constant and deliberate prototyping and material investigation. For the past 14 years, John has developed pioneering design technology and foresight projects and exhibitions and received critical acclaim, awards, and press internationally. His work has been exhibited at the MoMA in New York, at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and in numerous other spaces of learning and culture. Now, this is a conversation that takes on two directions that Hopefully, it will be interesting to our listeners. The first is looking at what Superflux does from a post humanist lens. Now, they don't necessarily call themselves post but the fact that they try to decenter the human, try to think beyond the species of the human, will really bring some insights into post humanism. But even if we don't want to go towards those esoteric philosophical ends, there's so much to learn here about design and experience and designing learning experience. For all learners, working with materials, how learners are transformed through these experiences, and how the designer is equally transformed in these experiences. There's a lot with the imagination that plays, a lot of innovative use of technologies, and simply just a different approach at creating experiences to shift mindsets, which is what Superflux is intending to do with some of their design and artwork. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. Check out Intrepid Ed News, www.intrepidednews.com. And we look forward to your comments and I'll leave space for my conversation with John. Hi, John. I'm really excited to have you on the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I came across uh, an article uh, from you that uh, talked a little bit about your work and really curious to learn about what you do, what Superflux do, and specifically blending this, this idea of art and nature and, and how you have brought in or, or bringing in the non-human world and really challenging what's being done out there, but also how people respond to some of the work that you're doing and, and, and how you respond to the world uh, that we're facing. First, I'll ask you the question that we ask all our guests. Who are you and what story do you want to tell?
0: Um, so I guess in terms of kind of autobiographic lines, i always I always struggle with that. I always kind of sends me off down a million paths of, of of what who I am and and what led me to this place. But um, yeah, just as a kind of overview, um my name is uh, John Arden. I was born uh forty four years ago uh, in the north of England in a small town called Lancaster. It's kind of on the edge of the the Lake District and the Forest of Bowland and these kind of uh, national parks. Um, that was kind of a big part of my growing up, was kind of spending time in nature and going on walks and camping and things. Um, yeah, now I now live in London. I've been here for uh, probably 22 years now. Um, I've got a 10-year-old son. And I run a a, a, a design studio with my wife, and Jane.
1: So I, I want to get into this idea of the design studio that you have and, and specifically the 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 approach that you that you bring to it. Uh but before I'll ask you and, and you're you're not from the education world who are many of the people that we talk to. So this is why your perspective would be so valuable as we open up the conversation. How do you define learning?
0: I could approach that from two ways. I'm I'm very dyslexic. Um so school was always a kind of a bit of a challenge. Um but also super curious as well so i've kind of i've always defined my learning as as kind of engagement with the world um with sort of observation seeing how things work trying to get that kind of gestalt view that seems to be when things click when i can place them within a bigger context and see how they kind of connect into other worlds and then it's also always been about doing for me um making playing exploring putting things together you know kind of uh seeing where things work and where things fail um so it's yeah it's about a kind of an embodied exploration of the world i'd guess um as opposed to the kind of more atomistic kind of traditional education system where you're kind of rote taught you know kind of facts that exist in in a separation i always had trouble kind of Digesting that and finding meaning in that, whereas the more kind of experimental and 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 kind of embodied learning was something that's kind of resonated with me and, and has become a practice within our design studio as well.
1: And, and a lot of the literature out there or some of the literature for the people in the psycho chamber is about that embodied learning. The fact that it is uh, the mind is not the brain. It's, it's a full body experience and even the social piece of it as well. Uh, I. I'm going to leave that thread hanging a little bit. Maybe we can pick it up in just a moment. But what I really want to get to the heart of immediately is the design studio and specifically how you bring in the non-human world or non-human perspectives. And I want to juxtapose that. I want to counter that or, 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 or maybe create some kind of um, dichotomy, but uh, maybe not the right word, but some kind of, of contrast with this idea of human-centered design. Which seems to be the big thing out there. Oh, it's human centered design. How how does Superflux work with that, against that, in in complementarity with that? What's your position on 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 these things, if any at all?
0: So yeah, we've been running Superflux for coming upon thirteen years now, um, and we started out quite focused on technology. We've always looked at the future. It's always been a, a studio that's focused on the future and big big influences and that started with looking at technologies and how they uh coexist and kind of breed with one another and how how they were shaping the world um but over time that that view expanded we were looking at big trends things that were really influencing us and then that kind of led us into climate and environment um and then recently we've yeah, we've been very focused on kind of the more than human world and what it might mean to um, what it might mean to live not just sustainably but regeneratively in the future, and, and what are the forces that that might influence that. And that's kind of led us to explore the kind of mythologies and poetics. Around that, and and kind of, I guess our sort of what working hypotheses these days is that um, it's not so much that that we're going to find technological fixes, although I think they possibly play a part in an, in a kind of in a path forwards. But I think the the main thing is that that we need a, a change of mind or a change of heart. Really, we need to change the way that we see ourselves and the way we see the world and the way that we see that relationship um and start to understand ourselves as kind of um part of the environment that there isn't this clear separation we are intimately intertwined uh with the world the world is ours and we are the world and i think that we've been kind of exploring ways to how do we how do we manifest that in um experiences and objects and environments? How do we kind of try and invoke a a taste of that in an audience um, with a view to hopefully, you know, kind of expanding people's uh, understandings of themselves in the world? So
1: I use the word non-human. You use the word more than human. And of course, you know, that separation already. I mean, it's not about the label, as you mentioned, there's part, there's entanglement between the two. When, When we talk about more than human what are we looking at exactly how how does it all entangle and enmesh into one another
0: i mean there are there are multiple ways of of approaching that and we think about it in different ways i mean i'm quite inspired by well an abs inspired by a lot of indigenous thinking and, and reads heavily and you know is into uh, robin Wall kimura and and that side of things for me it's always been A bit more of a direct engagement and a kind of you know exploration of the world and also looking at science and looking at you know there's a lot of science that 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 comes at it from a kind of what you might call left brain perspective that i find interesting just about how um our bodies are in this continuous kind of exchange with the world um but then there's also just that you know you could look at the deep history and the fact that we've you know, that that we've evolved in this kind of dance with the world, you know, and the, the shape of our bodies and the way that we see the world is has come out of is an emergent phenomenon from from this kind of dance of life throughout the you know throughout deep deep time. Um yeah, some some kind of many ways really many ways that, that we approach it and think about it. Um and then um, yeah, and then different ways that we've—I could talk talk some about some of the ways that we've explored that through our work.
1: And this is—and and I'd be very much interested in this—and and you're bringing in this, these indigenous worldviews, these these ways of 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 being within, becoming within the world, the worlds that we might have, as well as some of the the new science, the quantum physics that that also show entanglement of of uh, uh, of electrons, but certainly even more at a macro level um how how much does that inspire you in your work and maybe we can segue into how do we design for this kind of desire to shift mindsets
0: yeah um so yeah i mean as you said we are very much inspired by indigenous wisdom uh we're very inspired by the science by you know Mm -hmm. biology and physics um we also always try and find a unique perspective an embodied perspective so we're not just pulling from these streams of external wisdom but you know how do we experience it ourselves and, and what ways can we what are the ways in which we can get an embodied experience of that and how do we touch it ourselves so that we can kind of bring a, a an authenticity of experience to our work rather than simply kind of learning about you know it's it's almost like the learning of, of these different approaches become kind of maps or or frameworks that that help us explore but it's the exp- exploration that we're engaged in that is primary i think um at least for me anyway that's the thing that kind of that that gives my work meaning
1: i'd love to Eventually, get into the idea of how we can design learning experiences, because so much of our audience is, is within schools. But before we get that, maybe we can scaffold that a little bit, and you can um, let us know, or maybe tell us a story of one of the projects that you've designed, one of the things that you designed, something that you designed that you're most—I um, don't want to say proud of, but something that that really comes to mind, that 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 you're feeling the most at this moment.
0: So we did. We've done two two works recently that that really kind of explore that space um one is called refuge for resurgence and and that was thinking about new mythologies um so with that we designed the a dinner table for a multi it was we we call it a multi-species banquet so it was really a, a large dining table and we designed cutlery and offerings for multiple different species some of them you know things that we like a rat with with a kind of a this stool that had this kind of nest like structure and and came up to the to the table um and then you know things like ravens and as well as you know animals that we consider more majestic like a wolf and a bear and we were really thinking about what what might might a um a regenerative landscape be like where we kind of invite and bring back species that are part of an ecology and the table was was wasn't so much we weren't really imagining that you would necessarily have these creatures you know obviously if you've got a you know some of these creatures wouldn't dine peacefully together but it was more an embodiment of of a new sensibility to the world um and we kind of took that down to you know, making cutlery from found bits of kind of 20th century detritus, and and then like caringly kind of re re uh, combining them, and, and you know, and using techniques like uh, kensugi, and you know, these kind of ideas of like mending with care, and and reassembling these, yeah, things that would have been thrown out, turning them into almost like artifacts in a ritual, in a sacred ritual. Um so then that sat at this big oak table. We found uh, an oak tree that had died naturally, grown and died naturally, and we turned that into this big table. And that in itself was a a kind of an active embodiment because most most oak trees that are grown for furniture, they're grown, the the limbs are cut from them. They're kind of made to grow quickly and straight whereas this had kind of grown naturally it was the wood was ridiculously hard it was just it, with blunt tools inst- almost in- instantly and the the grain flows everywhere but there's a but you can kind of see it in the table when it's finished you can you know you can see this kind of flow of life that is kind of embodied in this in this table so it became almost like a you know a a practice in itself working with this material that isn't it's a non-standard material you can't just kind of stick it through a plane and you know you're having to use hand tools you're having to um you know kind of work with with the tree as it presents itself um so that was yeah that was presented as, as a large dining table with these place places Each plate had an image of the animal itself, but it also was the animal was set within a context that told a story of kind of a move from our current world of a kind of quite hubristic and arrogant relationship with nature through a period of of, um, turmoil and then into a kind of a more regenerative future. And at the head of the table, we had a large um, window view that was of a, it was three panels um that were that was actually made with three uh high resolution screens and and that created this this window view out on a a, a reimagined city that was kind of growing out of the detritus of 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 a, of a city of today but it's being re uh, reimagined and reworked and made a place that that is suitable for all life forms and all all species to kind of to live in harmony with with one another so that was kind of that was how we approached but that was that was one approach and then visitors would obviously come in they explore the the story on the table they explore the materiality of the of the of the um of the piece of the and then there's this view that gives this kind of view out onto the world and a larger context um and then i could talk briefly about another project that was called invocation for hope um with that, we worked with the forestry department in Austria. The, the piece was shown at the uh, Museum of Applied Art in uh, Austria. And it was, I don't remember how many trees we ended up using, but it was, it was, I think it was 400 uh, trees that were destroyed in a forest fire just outside of, of, um, of Vienna. And um, we brought those into the gallery. So it was a it was a kind of monocultured uh, forest of of burnt trees and rock and kind of quite desolate. But then leading into the middle of that, there was a uh, we had a, a regenerative forest actually growing in the mac. So we we had trees and we had um, a soundscape of of species. And then in the center of that, there was a pool. Uh, and when you looked into that pool, instead of seeing your reflection in the pool, you would see the reflection of another animal staring back at you. So we worked with a, a zoo, in um, an alpine zoo in Austria, and we we were actually placing GoPros into the drinking troughs of these animals so we could get these kind of these views of, of various animals drinking. And so it was this kind of what we wanted to show is this, again, like a, a walk from our current mindset into a different way of viewing ourselves and this pool in the middle being a kind of a an exemplar of that you look in you expect to see yourself but instead you see the the image of a of an animal in place of yourself
1: and i saw a video of the burnt trees and uh they were also lined up in rows per, the monoculture all lined up in rows it made me you know think of a um uh, an enlightenment uh, garden area in Europe, where everything is straight and and we, we straighten out nature. That must have been part of the message, of course.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was that kind of the the, the, the seeking to control nature and the results of of that in the kind of in the in the fire damage. In the-
1: and and this brings me to the idea of maybe within learning spaces and schools themselves, and how there is this idea of coming back to nature and bringing nature in, but it is still, in many cases, also this need to um, have not not really biodiverse pieces of nature, areas with nature, but also lined in rows and everything is perfectly cut, and, and there's no wilding of it. It's it's a containment of nature even within learning spaces. Can you envisage, for instance, a school, and I don't want to use the word school, maybe be limited by that, but could you envisage a learning space, whatever that might be, could have been a former museum, could have been a former school, could have been a former just space, uh, where where really nature is allowed to be wild? What might that look like? And I'm throwing this out at you, but just for your imagination.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think very much so. I know from my own childhood that... Um, I think I learned I went to a uh, a school. Lancaster's a quite a small city. And I ended up going to a a school just, you know, a few miles outside of that that was um in the forest of Bowland, a place called the Forest of Bowland. And there there was a small, I was really lucky in a way, but there was a there was a small woodland, old woodland that was kind of off to the side of the school. And in the summer we were allowed to play in there. And when i think back to that experience that's what i remember is is you know is is the, that kind of whatever it was an hour an hour and a half a day in the summer months of of being in that forest and of playing with friends and building dens and and kind of you start to kind of learn a, learn the rhythms of nature you start to learn uh the materiality of the of the trees and the and the environment that you're playing in um and just you know silly things like we would kind of find pieces of rock and crush them up into a powder and that was kind of traded amongst the uh, different different groups of kids in the school you know in exchange for the best den making sticks and things and it was all you know on the surface quite kind of silly and not so kind of um you know like I, I guess a teacher could look at it and, and and not see it as productive but actually i think there was a lot to be learned from that you know from the kind of materiality of of the rocks and the different kind of different rocks and the and the and the um and the you know what what made a good den you know what sticks and wood was good for kind of for then making through to kind of you know how do you kind of engage in 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 exchange of these things in a self-organizing and respectful manner um, and work out disagreements away from you know a teacher kind of telling you how you should act you're kind of hidden in this wood. so very much i could see that working um and i think in in london there's there's a little bit of a, a movement for forest schools um where people are, are kind of going into a woodland and they're teaching in that woodland um but obviously, it's in it's within a city, so it's mostly kind of managed woodland. But I think that, yeah, I think just kind of allowing children to to be with one another in a, a natural environment, with you know, with the freedom to kind of explore and 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 play without any kind of structured thing is is a is a very important thing and could be going forwards. I think if that if that could be expanded, that would be a good thing.
1: I'd also like to, to explore with you this idea that that I read that as you pushed out in your manifesto about moving from systems to assemblages, and oftentimes we think about systems already being a a cure, an improvement, a different ways of thinking, whatever we want to use over linear thinking, living systems even more so than just systems. But where where do assemblages? what what is the the transition of going from systems to assemblages
0: for me i think that systems still tend to there's still a sense of a top-down understanding there's a top-down kind of a control for me anyway systems imply a sense of control that, that i am controlling all these parts of this thing whereas assemblages to me has more of a flavor of autonomy and agency within those. So there is no, there is no God's eye kind of human controlling, you know, I'm, I'm, or, or AI or whatever it is kind of sitting on top, working this thing, all these parts, they have, they have their own autonomy, but they are working together. They're, 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 um, they're working for themselves but they're also you know part of a whole but there isn't that kind of there isn't that top down uh, point of control and i think that that's important i think that we need to find ways where and that's why we're talking about this kind of change of heart that it's like you know if if you if you just kind of uh mandate change from above and you say you know we see it with kind of um carbon taxes and things you know it's like we 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 apply these uh these rules but if you're kind of still coming at the world from an extractive point of view you're still exclusively profit motivated then all you'll do is kind of find ways to to manifest the same old problems through uh you know kind of finding a ways around these these laws and then continuing you know in the same kind of in the same direction in the same vein whereas i think if you can manifest this sort of change of mind or change of heart within the actors of these assemblages then you then you'll naturally kind of um people will naturally orientate towards a more regenerative future if you're looking at the world and you're seeing it as um part of yourself and part of your body you're not going to want to extract damage you know you're, you're going to want it to be healthy and vibrant because you understand that the more vibrant the more healthy the more regenerative the environment around you the more the more regenerative the more vibrant you are you know there, there isn't this kind of um strict strict boundary they're not externalities they're you know you're not you're not creating profit with a few externalities that are a little troublesome you're you know, you're damaging yourself at the expense of, you know, of, of a of a of a short-term gain.
1: And and it's interesting what, what you say because you you brought up uh, agency and and uh, I know in a lot of literature about assemblages about actor network theory and you know the fact that the the, the non-human world even non-living things have agency. We uh, for the listeners we we had a little bit of a delay on the podcast because I was having trouble with the mic and that in itself has agency. And now I'm a little bit. Still, with a little bit of trepidation that the mic is going to give out on me, and 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 that affects our conversation. Which, you know, you you are, are in a place where it's in London where it's cold, and that affects where our conversation. The, the weather, the mic, the computer, the light—all that has agency, and, and that might be a big shift for a lot of people. But I wonder whether or not there is a still, nevertheless, um, a way to ease into this idea of how we're all connected, and by we, I mean human non-human and more
0: than human world mm-hmm. um yeah, I mean for ourselves, I think we've we've arrived at this partly through our practice and partly through the work that we've been doing um and from creating these experiences and these environments and then and then you're sat in them and you start to understand that actually this is changing how I'm thinking, this is changing how um. Um, relating to the world um and this is it's actually something that we're exploring at the moment is you know how can we create spaces that allow people to think about the future from the future uh so the plan is to kind of engage in um deep listening exercises try and with with members of the public start to kind of try and tease out some uh visions of the future that that don't split across kind of partisan lines. There seems to be a lot of kind of worrying about what the future should be and and and, and what's important and what isn't. So we want to, to find what are the common threads in that and how can we embody that in, um, in an experience or in an environment and then allow that environment to then have a recursive kind of uh, action where we then go back into that environment and then we can kind of think and talk about these things in that space. Um, but yeah, it's something that we've we've found powerful and almost, not quite accidentally, but, but almost like, you know, we we're kind of designing these spaces to be, um, to allow people to step in and kind of get a sense of a potential future. But I think we, what we weren't ex- experiencing we weren't expecting was that, um, that the the effect that that would have on us and our own thinking.
1: Which is absolutely beautiful in the sense that so much of this talk of assemblage is, is removing the separation, the observer, the, the designing something and then stepping back. You were part of, in every, in every sense, the experience in the assemblage and that changed you as much as those who had or though in different ways those who had experienced it from another point of view
0: yeah absolutely absolutely possibly more more so because you're just you're embedded in that i think one of the one of the the kind of key moments for that was we'd um we'd created a an an apartment we had a project called mitigation of shock and it was looking at food insecurities in the future and we created a an apartment you know two rooms in the apartment at, at full scale and it had a a view out of the window onto a, a a reimagined London and it had a radio show playing some music and then a, and then a kind of a news article and there was a newspaper flying around with different headlines about the future. Um, and then we had within it, we had all these food computers that we'd created to kind of explore, like what could you grow in, in your house and how might you, you change the way that you, live in your house and the the way that it functions like removing the the space that was once given over to kind of a tv and and lounge and stuff is now you know growing growing food and we had maps and things on the wall but yeah i found you know it it was maybe a week week and a half of installing that and we'd taken our old sofa from london we'd we'd placed that in the apartment because we wanted a new sofa it seemed like a, a nice (laughs) <laughs> a nice uh a fitting kind of goodbye to it so i was kind of like lying on on the sofa that i've laid on you know a hundred times before in my house in this apartment with this news cycle in the background and the lights from this thing and yeah you really really start to kind of start to forget that i was inside this installation that i was actually building and 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 actually just start to kind of sink in, I guess this is the this is the world now, and it's and it's surprising that even with you know I kind of knew how every aspect of that installation works. I knew that the the sound of the neighbors running around was speakers and the soundscape that I'd you know been been part of creating, um but still like just just by going into that environment and just kind of uh, relaxing in there kind of the how quickly the kind of the body just sort of reattunes to that environment. And then through that kind of reattunement, the way that you're thinking, the way that you're you're considering the world starts to change.
1: She can just go show how these objects, these sounds, these lights, the the way the decisions are made have, have agency. What are some of the design principles that an educator can take in terms of creating experiences that shift mindsets that are embodied are there certain things that are transferable are there certain things that are i don't want to use the word universal but certainly that can be uh, magpied uh in, into uh an education setting
0: yeah that's a good that's a good question because this is kind of in some ways we haven't had so much time to kind of to to really to break down. You know, it's been it's been more a practice of kind of doing and exploring. um So I'm kind of thinking live on this in a way. But I think there's definitely a kind of an experimental aspect to it, and not being too kind of um, not assuming that you know the outcome ahead of time. You know, having a kind of having it, you need a you need a a kind of compass direction, but at the same time, you need to be present in in the in the thing as it evolves. And you need to kind of find ways to to get your hands dirty and to kind of really, you know, it's it's not so much like a, a formula that will result in a given ends, but more a kind of a process of of mutual discovery and you're kind of looking at your own reactions as much as you're looking at the reactions of of other people in in the exploration but i mean there are there are some very practical things that that you should i guess you would think about in in creating these environments and that's you know kind of hitting all the senses you know making sure that you if you can you know even down to if you can evoke smells um if you can, you know, thinking about the the temperature and humidity in the space, thinking about the not just the the sounds that you want people to hear, perhaps you know you've got a soundtrack, but you know what's the kind of ambient? Because I think that that because we often navigate the world with this kind of sharp point of attention that is very kind of focused upon uh, specific things that 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 you're actually working with you kind of you tend to tune out the periphery and think that that's less important but i, I think that there's you know the body's always hearing and you're always taking in all these you know all these peripherals all these details so i think kind of giving giving weight to that as well you know don't not ignoring the fact that not just thinking that well I want somebody to come in and, and read this so that's the only thing that's important but it's the whole environment it's the things that that have a subtle uh impression upon you are sometimes the things that 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 really kind of touch you the most because you're not applying your kind of rational cognitive filter to them they're just they're just kind of slowly seeping in beneath the the level of that, you know, of that kind of rational cognition. So I think they're, they're really important things to think about in the designing of these spaces and in the kind of communication of these ideas and, and whatnot.
1: I, I'm really fascinated by this conversation. And I suppose that my last question is, what's on your horizons? What are some of the things that you will do that you're thinking about, that you're feeling, uh, that are going to challenge you and push you? Uh, as you go into new directions,
0: um, so the big, the big kind of direction of the studio at the moment is thinking about how can we take these things and create toolkits. So it's kind of you know it's almost answering your previous question, um, but it's an, an ongoing process of you know how how do we take what we've been doing, which is relatively bespoke and has been as much of a, a learning um process for us as it has been an experience for for audiences um and yeah how do we what can we take from that that we can reproduce and what are the ways that it can be re- reproduced by non-designers and 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 how can we bring in audiences in a more directed way i guess thinking about okay this is this is a challenge that that we want to address whether that's um environmental or social and yeah how can we bring things like yeah you know, practices of deep listening circling authentic relating how can we combine that with these environments and these environmental thinking and 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 how might that uh help create these collective visions that that are kind of inspired and 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 people can get behind from different walks of life and different political um persuasions so i mean that's yeah it's somewhat vague but we're in that kind of space in the design project at the moment where it's um yeah where we're kind of figuring it out as we go but yeah that's vaguely we want to kind of tools for the uh, collective imagining might be a a nice wrapper
1: and I guess that goes along with what you say about maybe having a compass but meandering and walking along and finding out where we're going to be as we get there
0: exactly exactly and I think that's always a major part of the uh, a major part of the design process and it's funny because often you know if you're working with clients or you're or you're applying for funding um you're often required to almost state the the destination before you've taken the journey and i think that um yeah that's that's always difficult and it's kind of and it's almost like it's almost um yeah contrary to the whole point of the process. The process is about this process of exploration and of finding out and of, and of, um, yeah, of meandering, as you say.
1: But this brings up actually another question, which is this idea of problem solution. Um, and if you have a a problem and you're trying to find a solution for it, there's a certain linearity to there. how How do we resolve that, that need?
0: We always talk about it in terms of, um, that's the term we use navigating a predicament But it's not necessarily about you know that solving a problem that that in that kind of here is a, a defined because i think the 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 problem with the problem solution paradigm is that you that you think that you have this specific problem that exists in isolation and you can apply a fix to that and that removes the problem but actually all these you know so-called problems are enmeshed in these ecological networks and we've seen you know we've there's many things that today that we've solved you know that kind of extracting oil solves the problem of of cheap energy but then because you're focused on that as a solution you you don't notice that actually you're you're not you may be fixing that problem but you're also in the fixing of that you're creating all these other other problems for yourself so i think when you kind of see it as a as a predicament to be navigated it's a, a potentially a more helpful frame and then also just to think about if you are thinking about the problem just to make sure that you expand that problem space that you don't you know that there aren't there isn't a problem with externalities from the fix that that problem is enmeshed in this kind of wider relationship of of the world and social um structures and and things and to be cognizant of that you're not just kind of you know pushing down that lump for it to appear in multiple other places
1: well listen thank you very much i really appreciate your time this has been a coconut thinking podcast i'm your host benjamin freud thank you so much for listening we are in collaboration with Intrepid news our website is www.coconut-thinking.design Intrepid Ed News is on www.intrepidednews.com. And if you want to check out the WISER framework, that's www.wisr.life. It's a lot of URLs. I try to give them every time. And love to see your comments and your views and connecting with us on LinkedIn. Our next episode will come uh, fairly soon. We've got a few really interesting folks to continue to open the conversation beyond school. In the meantime, look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye-bye.